Well, good morning. I'd uh, like to just give you a little bit more introduction or say a little something um, before I start. I uh, got a phone call a number of weeks ago and was pleasantly surprised to get the invitation to preach here this morning. I was a bit shocked. Uh, I thought, they really want an Anglican to come preach? Although I'm Presbyterian at heart. I grew up Presbyterian. Um, but we're, my wife and I are members of the Cathedral of St. Luke and St. Paul over on Cumming Street. And uh, my pastor there, the, the dean of the cathedral, uh, knows that I'm here this morning. And he, uh, he, was, in, in, he was excited about that. Um, but we, uh, about five years ago, wandered into the church here just out of curiosity uh, because and we knew somebody that went to church here, I guess it was, and we decided, let's go see what Redeemer Presbyterian is like. My old, well, I, see, I grew up Presbyterian, and then I worked um, in Chicago in a non-denominational church for 10 years doing youth ministry, and then I got recruited, sort of, uh, I guess you could say persuaded, to move with my family to England, uh, where we lived for five years and we worked in the Church of England. The guy who made me Anglican, so to speak, bringing me into the Church of England, uh, then years later is moved to Atlanta and is a PCA pastor. So you can kind of see that there's like some linkage there, which is, which is kind of funny. But anyway, we wandered over this way one Sunday and, and came to church and, and really enjoyed it. And we came back several times during the course of that year. Maybe you could count them in one hand uh, in the number of times we visited there. But we've gotten to a point where we're here. We try to make a point of being here once a month. It's kind of we look at y'all as an extended church family and have felt very welcomed in that. And, uh, and even joined a community group here, which has been a, a wonderful blessing um, to my wife and I. So uh, while we're sort of, I think Craig said regular, it's, it's regular but not every Sunday um, because our church home is actually within uh, a church in the diocese that I work for. Um, I'll, we're going to read God's Word this morning, and, um, and if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, we'll get into that. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, how, uh, sorry, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity to worship you and we thank you for your word and the things that it brings to us and feeds us. And Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see some things and open our ears to hear some things and open our hearts to receive uh, that which you have for us in this text this morning. I pray that uh, I would be out of the way and your message would come through with great clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt like God was distant and yet at the same time not? 
in such a way that you know he's not actually far, but you don't sense his presence, or you barely sense it at all? You perhaps see his presence in the lives of other people around you, and you long for the joy that they experience, but it's not there for you. Have you ever experienced sorrow or depression that didn't seem to want to go away? Has that sorrow or depression led you to anxiety about your faith in the sense that you begin to wonder, as this psalm expresses, how long, how long will I feel this way? Anxiety and depression affect some 40 million American adults today. It's a shocking number. Nearly one in 10 teenagers struggle with it as well. As one who's been doing youth ministry for nearly 30 years, and I feel funny saying that because it makes me feel really old, it astonishes me that whereas 20 years ago it was relatively rare to have somebody in the youth group who was actually struggling with depression or anxiety, it is common today to have several in a group of teenagers that are struggling with this. For the Christian... Experiencing anxiety or depression can carry with it shame. We're not supposed to feel this way. We know the truth of the gospel. We know that we are forgiven people. We're not supposed to carry this heavy burden. And yet sometimes we do. In some instances, that shame started with sin and led to depression. In others, the anxiety or the depression led to to sin, which brought along a boatload of shame, which then led to more depression or more anxiety. It becomes a vicious cycle and one that is extremely difficult to break out of. The enemy strikes hard in the midst of this, telling the Christian that they're not worthy of God's love and that their Christian brothers and sisters won't accept them because of it. We then hide or wear a mask or perhaps even avoid Christians altogether. The question becomes, how long? How long? My work over the years has periodically involved helping struggling youth pastors. So I sometimes get a call from a pastor who will explain that their youth ministry is not going well, and would I meet with the youth pastor and try to work out whatever the issues seem to be might be that I need to coach the person, mentor the person, or um, just give some insights and guidance. Often in those situations, I found a depressed youth pastor. And that depressed state of mind was crippling or at least hindering his or her ability to minister to teens. In one instance, I found a very depressed youth pastor. And I later discovered that his depression uh, started with an addiction to porn, something I had no idea about. His shame led to depression, and that depression was killing his ministry. In another, the youth pastor had developed a drinking problem and had a disposition that became toxic. It was really quite frightening. But in each case, the cry of the youth pastor was, how long must I suffer? In each case, the person struggled with the sense that God had become very distant. In each case, depression as a Christian leader was a matter of shame and high anxiety. They felt isolated and lonely. 
they wrestled with daily with the shame or sadness or anxiety about not only their jobs but their faith as well. How long, O Lord? I recently learned that genetic testing can show a person if their DNA is predisposed to depression. It has to do with how our body produces and interacts with its chemical makeup. I learned this in a doctor's office when I was getting some results back on a genetic test on me. It did not surprise me to learn that I am more prone than the average person towards depression. I've struggled on and off with it since I was a teenager. Sometimes it's been incredibly difficult, yet this psalm shows us there is hope. There is great hope. Psalm 13 was written by David, whose struggles are clearly documented in the Bible. David had a, a more challenging life than most of us do. He had a humble beginning. He was living under the shadow of his older brothers. He was chosen by God to be king, and as king, he faced a very jealous predecessor. He had enemies that are clearly identified in scripture, and, that made, and David made some pretty major mistakes in his life. In that context of his life in general, David expressed a vast range of emotions in writing the Psalms. Unlike some of the other emotionally challenging Psalms, though, this one, Psalm 13, cannot be pinpointed to a specific event in David's life. There is no real evidence that at the time of writing he was running from Saul or from some other enemy or facing some opposition within his kingdom or from outside of his kingdom. Basically, we don't have any sort of specific background that caused him to write this. But that's okay. It's a, it's a general, more general psalm in that sense. The first two verses show us David's struggles. We can see from them several realities that some of us can relate to immediately and others might relate to at one time or another in their lives. All of this, I think, is relevant to us at one point. What I mean by that is if any, everything's going just fine in your world and you're hearing the sermon wondering what does this have to do with my life, just wait. We have seasons in our lives. We all face times in our lives that are marked by sorrow or grief or struggles. And we see from the start that David's emotional struggle has been going on for a while. The fact that he asks four times how long tells us this is not a brand new emotional state for him. When we first face sorrow or sadness, we don't immediately question, how long will we feel this? We don't sit and go, how long, how long, Lord, when it's just fresh? That's not what's on our mind. It's only after a while do we begin to wonder how long. David's struggle has been going on for a while when he writes this. There may have been a series of events that had been going on for some time during this dark period in his life. It could have been one event that triggered a prolonged struggle. To give another example of this, we could look at Job. And we notice that when Job faced a a rapid series of hardships, that quick succession of hardships, he showed courage and conviction. But when he could no longer see the end of his misery, he slumped and he started to lose hope. That sort of gives you an idea that when we look at that and go, well, David's been struggling with this for a while based on what he's saying. The second reality we see in these first two verses is the feeling of abandonment that David is expressing. This comes from an apparent lack of blessing 
or to phrase it as we tend to experience it, the lack of the sense of God's presence. David expresses a sense of abandonment in questioning if God has forgotten him. Yet the question of God hiding his face goes deeper than merely being forgotten. There's an expression in the Old Testament that indicates that God's blessing is on a person. It is to say that God's face would shine upon them. This is to say that God is showing favor or blessing a person. David is not seeing God's blessings in his life. He had experienced God's favor many times. This is not one of them. We experience this in our lives as well. Times when we feel like we've got God's blessing and other times when we wonder, is God still looking at me? Is God's face still shining on them? I'll give you a couple of examples. When we get married and live in that honeymoon phase where all is well and rosy and so forth, we sense God's blessing in our marriage. Life is good after we have kids and the marriage uh, becomes hard work, we start to wonder, uh, God, are you still blessing this union? Some of you experience that, some might not. In our jobs, we may have great periods of success where everything goes wonderful and we get promoted and things go our way and, and all that kind of thing. And then we have times when things get really hard and sometimes when we lose jobs and so forth and we wonder, where's God's blessing? Where's God's favor? We don't sense that at that point. For a a pastor, when a church stops growing and stagnates, or it dwindles and starts to lose members even, he begins to ask where God's blessing is. In our spiritual lives, we've all had probably times when we sensed God's presence in powerful ways, and then we wonder why he's hidden our face from us when we have a long period of time where we just don't sense his presence in the same way. If it lasts a while, we might even think that God gave up on us. So we can get a sense of what David's going through, this sense of abandonment, the sense of lacking his blessing or lacking God's presence in his life. The third time David asks how long, he reveals to us that he has a conflicted mind on things and his heart is filled with sorrow. Sadness and depression go hand in hand with all all sorts of struggles in our minds. We question and wrestle with things that we don't struggle with otherwise. The emotional funk tends to take over uh, our thinking process and it begins a downward spiral. We're not thinking clearly enough to weigh the blessings in our lives and lean on the truth of the gospel. Let me try to illustrate this from personal experience particularly for those who don't fully yet understand how these things work because maybe you've not been there. And, and if you've not been there, praise God for that because it's, it's not fun. Several years ago, my depression was kicking in because I was struggling to keep up with my work due to uh, excessive tiredness. I was just having a hard time getting through each day. I struggled to do my job or to do it well, and that made me depressed. I felt like a failure. Two years ago, I finally went to a doctor about that, and I was uh, tested and so forth and diagnosed with narcolepsy. It's, it's a disorder that I apparently inherited from my grandfather. Thanks, Grandpa. And it means that my brain prefers, to, prefers sleep 
to being awake. In fact, very specifically, my brain refer, prefers to be in REM sleep, which, you know, you're not meant to be in that all the time, but I go into it instantly. It's, it's crazy. And consequently, as a result, I have uh, excessive daytime sleepiness. I, I tried various medicines, and several of them didn't do a thing. And then we found one that helped a little bit. But months later, that medication that helped me a little bit landed me in the hospital with an irregular heartbeat that doctors call AFib, atrial fibrillation. So no longer could I take the one medication that helped me stay awake. Now, I, I give you that as background to understand what was going on in my mind. The struggle in my mind went like this. At first, I kept thinking I was a, a failure because I couldn't keep up with my work. But then after discovering, well, I've got a, a medical condition, um, the chatter in my head was that I was a depressed narcoleptic with AFib. And, and it, you know, there was times I chuckled about it and thought, this sounds really funny, uh, especially when I'd say narcoleptic and AFib, people would wonder, do I steal things and lie all the time? No, no, that's not the case at all. <clears throat> but I struggled with my work still and, and life in general. And we act on our identity. We act on our identity. So rather than viewing myself as a child of God, a redeemed son who is forgiven, I viewed myself as a total mess and certainly not worthy of anybody's blessing. In the midst of that, in between my diagnosis and ending up in the hospital, my little brother died unexpectedly of heart failure. So we added sorrow to the mix. It, it, it just complicates the brain and it makes it difficult for you to think clearly when sorrow is in the mix and when depression is in the heart. Now, think about what might be going on in David's head. He's feeling abandoned by God. He's no longer experiencing God's blessing and he's not sensing God's presence in his life. He's wrestling with thoughts that are being driven by his sadness. It's not a pretty picture. Then he asks one more how long question. How long will my enemy triumph over me? We might immediately think of David's human enemies. Paul, uh, Saul hated him. Others fought against him. But he well may have been meaning the same enemy that we all have. As Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, the devil is the adversary of our souls. He takes advantage of our struggles and our emotional state to seek to destroy us. For a person wrestling as David was at this time, it's no exaggeration to feel that the enemy is triumphing over us. Well, how does David then get out of this mess? We know he does because the psalm ends on a much more positive note. How might we get out of this mess if we're like David, struggling with sensing God's presence, dealing with sorrow or negative thinking? How might we overcome depression or at least keep it from destroying our lives? David turns to God in prayer. There's something to notice about this, several things to notice about this, actually. David could have bottled this up and kept it to himself, but he does not. I know a lot of people are bottlers. I've at times in my life been a bottler and kept my emotions to myself. I have some people in my family that do that. 
it's not helpful. Psalm 32 verse 3 says, uh, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Bottling up our emotions kills us. It just destroys us. It's devastating. David doesn't choose that path this time, which is fantastic. He chooses instead to turn to God in prayer. Now, prayer, when a person's depressed and feeling distant, is both the simplest and the hardest thing to do. It's simple in that we know in our heads that God listens to our prayer, that God is always there to listen to us. It's hard because when we don't sense God's presence, we're not inclined to speak to him. If we don't sense God's presence, we're not inclined, naturally, to speak to him. It's, it's a, if you think of someone that has left the room, you don't strike up a conversation with them right? Somebody's gone out of the room, you're not going to start talking to them. Maybe you shout though. Maybe you shout in a loud enough voice for that other person to hear. I know this happens all the time in my house. It's not hard to imagine that David might just be, in a sense, shouting as he prays. Trying to just thinking, okay, God's there, I don't sense his presence, but maybe, maybe he's going to hear this. As a true child of God, David knows that God is actually there, despite the feelings that he's just expressed. To feel abandoned requires that there's someone out there who might have abandoned us. It's not unlike the fact that when we struggle with issues, it's an indication that God is working in us. David prays, verse 3, Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. David in this simple prayer makes three requests. Look on me, answer, and give light. He feels that God has turned away from him, has hidden his face. So his first request is for God to look at him. He also fears that God is no longer speaking to him and may never speak to him again. So he asks God to answer. His feelings have deceptively told him that his enemy will triumph. So David's third request is for God to give him light. Light to his eyes. Which is to say, restore me and preserve me. David wants to see clearly And he wants to be fully alive again. He's tired of the battle in his mind. He's tired of the darkness that seems to surround him. He wants light. He doesn't want to sleep in death in a literal sense or a spiritual sense. He doesn't want to lose the battle and have his enemies win. He wants that light. The last two verses suggest something has happened. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. To some extent, we get the sense that God has answered his prayer to a, I'd say, a small extent. I don't think this means that all is immediately well at all. I don't think there's much that necessarily has changed in the circumstance. But having prayed what he did, 
David is now clearly able to trust, express his trust in God. He has remembered God's unfailing love, and his heart rejoices over his salvation. His final expression is both future tense and past tense. I will sing would indicate that he in, indi- that would indicate that he anticipates a day when his sorrow and struggle will be behind him and he will freely sing praise to God. He notes that God has been good to him, and in doing so, he's recalling the truth that God has been good to him, but he's also perhaps even anticipating the goodness of God in releasing him from this sadness. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me in delivering me from this dark time. It would appear that God put a little light back into David's eyes at this point. Well, can we get to the same point that David does? We, we knew, or David knew God's presence in his life and experienced great blessings. Only because of that was he aware enough to think that God had abandoned him. Jesus on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While Jesus was taking our sin to the grave, the face of God was not on him because God cannot look on sin. It's not hard to see that what David has cried out in the psalm is but a shadow of what Jesus went through. That being said, we can know that Jesus has experienced a level of sorrow beyond anything we may ever face. The salvation that David speaks of is fulfilled in the work of Christ on the cross. Yet David rejoices in it, not fully understanding exactly how God saves. He just knows that his God is a God of salvation. We have a bigger picture, and we have plenty of reason to rejoice in the salvation that only comes through God, through Jesus on the cross. God has shown his unfailing love throughout history, and we actually have a a bigger history than David was looking at because we have both Old and New Testament. Yet, we can only get to the point of praise that David reaches if we turn to God in prayer, if we cry out, and then if we dwell on the goodness of God, if we pray and we cry out and then we trust in God. This will not immediately change our circumstances, but over time, we need to trust that they will change. As we see the light of Christ in our lives again, perhaps just slowly, Over a period of time, we can trust, we can rejoice, and we can sing praise. We want to see the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, and we want to know that it's not a train. We can even, as David seems to do here, sing praise for God's goodness, anticipating the day when the darkness will be removed. So sitting in church on a Sunday morning when you're feeling down, and we sing a song of great praise... There's nothing wrong with singing that saying, I know God one day is going to get me through this. And almost singing sort of in it, in you know, anticipating that future. We know that God, who begins a good work in us, will complete his work of sanctification. God is good. A few practical thoughts here to help uh, us apply this psalm to our lives, perhaps. If David a man after God's own heart, can wrestle with sorrow and sadness, anxiety and feelings of abandonment, 
then why should we for a minute think that we would be exempt from that possibility? We all have seasons of life that we need to acknowledge and we need to support one another in them. How does the Christian walk through such a mess with brothers and sisters in Christ? For me, the greatest moments in the past couple of years have been when I spent, spent time sharing and praying with fellow Christians. Our community groups on Wednesday nights was a lifeline for me during the past year. There were times when I had so much going on and was busy and thought I shouldn't go because I've got work to do, you know, something or other, and I made a point of going because I knew that it, it was so good for my soul. I have some friends that I get opportunity to meet up with periodically where we have extended prayer times, and those have warmed my soul in ways that I can't begin to describe. Sadly, too often Christians don't open up for fear of rejection. We need each other. We need to pray together. We need to share our lives together, share what is really going on in our lives. When depressed, our minds are not clear and our vision is very limited. We therefore need to be cautious about what we do when we're in this state. We shouldn't make big life decisions in the midst of darkness because our perceptions are skewed. We also have to remember as we look at our spiritual, look at that, remember that as we look at our spiritual health, that we don't have an accurate picture. We don't have a clear assessment of where we stand with God when we're in that darkness. Things look far bleaker from the inside than they are in reality. Depression can stem from a wide variety of conditions. Events in our lives, job situations, a chemical imbalance in our brains, deep-seated sin, relationship struggles, and even the aftermath of a challenging situation that went really, really well but took all of our energy out of us. Something really very, very positive. And we get done with it, and it, was so, it just took up, wrapped up so much of us that we get done and we feel drained and we feel depressed. Elijah is a, is a great example of that. He sat down and wanted to die after wonderful things happened, after God had used him in huge ways. We need to be careful how we treat people who are in depression because they've often not brought it on themselves. As I mentioned already, some of us are genetically predisposed to depression. This is a result of the fall. We all have our imperfections. You probably noticed yours in the mirror this morning. I know I noticed mine. If you suffer from depression or anxiety, it's wise to get help. Some Christians are reluctant to take medicine for these things. But when we're in a state of suffering, medicines can bring clarity to our minds so that we can focus on God in the right way. They can help alleviate the wrestling of our thoughts and turn those negative thoughts to positive so that we can work through the issues that caused the depression to begin with. They can also prevent us from going into a tailspin and finding our lives out of control. Finally, in the midst of, of sadness, the Psalms are a great source of comfort and they remind us well of the goodness of God. We repeatedly are reminded that the Lord is good and that his love endures forever. I also find great comfort in the words of Lamentations chapter 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every day. 
or never come to an end, sorry. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. On, on a good day, that's stuck in my head. That has stuck in my head and just I've carried that with me throughout the day. It's, it's quite amazing and encouraging. And then every year around Easter, I'm struck again by a phrase in Isaiah 53. By his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. There is something profound about the truth that what Jesus suffered on the cross brings healing to my brokenness. There's something profound about the truth that what Jesus suffered on the cross brings healing to my brokenness. So we've seen this psalm, six verses, where David moves from pain to prayer to praise. Wow, it's quick. In it, David moved from anxiety over a sense of abandonment and a prolonged sorrow or sadness to trusting, rejoicing, and anticipating praising God again one day. We know that because of the cross and because of God's faithfulness, we can sing God's praises. And when we cannot at a particular moment, we know that we will do so once again because God is good and his love endures forever. God is faithful even when we don't feel it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for David's honesty and his openness that we could know what was on his heart and in his mind, that we could see his faith, we could see the strength of uh, his convictions that he turned to you and gives us an example of doing the same. Lord, I pray for every person here today that really relates to what I've shared and has or, or is struggling in some way. I pray that you would deeply encourage them, deeply encourage us to keep pursuing you, to keep turning to your word and to hang in there and to trust that you will uh, bring us to a place of greater healing. And Lord, for those who haven't experienced it, I, I praise you that uh, life is good, and, um, and I pray that uh, we would understand uh, what might happen to us at some point in a time of grief or sorrow, and that we would understand that that's a part of life. It's a part of the brokenness of this world. Lord, I, I praise you for all these things. I praise you for your word. And I pray that you'd watch over us. In Jesus' name, amen.